Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. You're listening to episode 129 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're answering weird questions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. This isn't a Fifth Friday, but it is the Thanksgiving weekend here in the U.S., so we're offering a special weird questions episode this week. So, Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about today? Are transporters murder machines from Star Trek? What would history be like without Jesus? We're going to be talking about the Holy Grail, whether there could be an evil God as well as a good God, and also space colonies and the implications for bishops. Oh, all very interesting. So, folks, I hope you enjoy this episode. We'll be right back after all of these questions. All right. Are you ready for some weird questions? Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> Let the weirdness begin. Tim asks this. I was reading the news recently and was a bit overwhelmed with all the bad news. Somewhat unconsciously, I said, Jesus, we need you. And that triggered my question. What does Jimmy think the world would be like now if Jesus incarnation had still not happened? Oh, this is a good, weird question. All other things the same. Where would we be without Christ teaching and the church to have guided us the last few millennia Two millennia to be exact? So, um... It's an interesting question. There's a lot of what's called, there's a whole genre of what's called alt history yeah. or alternative history where authors will try to imagine how world history would have gone differently if something had not happened at a particular juncture. And so you have a lot of things like what if the South won the Civil War? What if Hitler got the bomb? What if Abraham Lincoln were not assassinated? All those kind of things. Right, right. And, um, <clears throat> It's it's impossible to know for sure, but we can speculate on such things. I would say that without the and and here I'm not saying that God would leave us unredeemed. I, he could redeem us in another way or he could have Jesus come in the 22nd century instead of the first. Yeah. Um, but, but then that would be the first century of the Christian. Age. The, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, in that case, we would now be in the uh, 28th century of the year of the founded city, oh, which yeah. is this the timekeeping system the Romans used. Right. Um, I would suppose that it, it, the Roman Empire probably would not exist today. Uh, it, even with Christianity, it wasn't able to survive mm -hmm. long term. I mean, it survived for a long time, but it wasn't permanent. And so I would suspect it would have fallen apart like it did in our history. And we'd have different nations, probably with some of them with different names, some of them with maybe the same names. Um, but uh, the key thing that I think would have happened or a key thing that I think would would have happened is, well, let's uh, we would still have Judaism. 
Right. Because Judaism predates Christianity and is a divinely created religion and God has promised it's not it, it's not going to go out of existence till the end of the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're still going to have Jewish people here at the end. Uh, so we would still have Judaism. Um, we would not have Christianity, obviously, and we would not have Islam because Islam broke away from Christianity. Um, we probably would have more paganism. In the world, mm-hmm. uh, we probably would we might have some some prominent monotheisms. Um, Judaism may oh. not have gotten huge, but in this alternate timeline we're imagining, but Zoroastrianism might might have. Also, there could be other religions that would be more prominent than they are, like Mithraism may not have died out. In this alternate timeline, that was a religion that in the first century was quite popular among Roman soldiers. And so without Christianity moving in and spreading, the soldiery of the empire could have continued to spread Mithraism. Mm -hmm. Um, We would not have the restraining influence on world history of Christ's ethic of brotherly love. And that has played an enormous role in civilizing people and in restraining our otherwise fallen urges. And without that as a without the ethic of universal love, at least held up as an ideal, however imperfectly people do with it. Right. um, I suspect the world would be a more barbaric place and it probably thus would not. It's hard to say what the impact of that would be on technology. It's entirely possible that technology would not have developed as far as it has without the stability that uh, the ethic of brotherly love has provided, because that creates situations of greater peace, which allows a greater flourishing of the economy because it's not totally being destroyed by war all the time. Right. Um, On the other hand. War can be a stimulus to uh, technological development. And so it's also possible that we could have gotten the same technology or even better through it being spurred on by war. Um, But I suspect the world would be a more violent place than it has been. And it's been violent enough, but I suspect it would be even have been even more violent. Uh, Tim, thank you for starting us off with a great question uh, for Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken. Uh, Kevin asks this. Is the Holy Grail worthy of any more reverence or veneration than the average chalice used at mass since they both hold the precious blood of our Lord? I think the answer would be yes. Uh, I they they both have enormous dignity because they they hold the the blood of our Lord. But I would think that the Holy Grail would still be unique in two ways. First, it would be the grail that uh, was the very first one to be used. And so that's going to make it special compared to other grails. And secondly, um, it was the one that Jesus held in his own hands. And that, I think, also would make it special. So not just because of its it also would be, you know, very old and thus an antiquity and valuable for that reason. But in addition to all of that, I would say the fact that it's the first and that Jesus himself used it made it completely unique and it would have special added uh, reverence for that reason is uh, I, I just want to follow up on kevin's question because is there uh-huh. really such a thing as the holy grail is this like well there's going to be an the, upcoming episode of mysterious oh, World. oh come on jimmy <laughs> uh like uh, did people 
I don't know, was it mm-hmm. was it does I it it doesn't play any part in early Christian history that we can right, see, right? right? So it would have had to have disappeared and then Yeah, it's unclear. I mean there are claimants. There okay. are actually several claimants of this is the Holy Grail. Oh. Um that are around in different parts of the world. But the authenticity of those is something that, you know, I haven't had personally the chance to investigate yet. Personally I'm a little skeptical of uh, that particular relic being preserved for all this time, because we don't have a, a what in archaeology is called a good provenance for it. We don't yeah. have records of it being used in the early centuries and being retained and people knowing where it was and things like that. There's a historical gap. I got you. Yeah, fair enough. Adam on Twitter. I do not know if we have had a question from Twitter before, but it's exciting to me to see it. Hypothetically, Adam says, if invented, would the church say that the use of a transporter or beaming up as in beam me up, Scotty, would be the equivalent of suicide and or human cloning? So um, it's going to depend on the way the transporter works. Um, And there have been different accounts. We're talking about the Star Trek transporter. There are other proposed methods of teleportation, some of which are destructive and some of which are not. So if it's not a destructive form of teleportation, it wouldn't involve either killing or cloning. But if it's a destructive form of teleportation, it would seem to involve both. On Star Trek, we've had different accounts that don't entirely jibe with each other about how the Star Trek transporters work. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, we have a bunch of instances where they'll talk about people being dematerialized and ripped apart atom by atom and having those atoms transmitted across space, or at least having the information transmitted yeah. across space and then reconstituted at some point. And if that's how it works, then yeah, um, the transporter kills you and makes a clone of you. Yeah. And what I like about this question is not just the does it kill you part, which has been discussed quite a bit, but not as many people have considered the other end of the process where you have this duplicate of you. Is that human cloning and is it therefore immoral? And so not only would it seem and I would say, yeah. Because uh, not only is it immoral to kill a person, it's also immoral to clone a person um, because we are bound by the system of human reproduction that God has you know, built into our human nature. And we're not allowed to produce humans in other ways. Uh-huh. So um, and so consequently, this would be producing a human in another way would happen to be identical to someone else, which is also uh, problematic. But you're coming up with a human not through marital lovemaking, and that's immoral. So, yeah, it would be. I would, though, say that uh, this uh, copy would have a a human soul. Um, God has uh, apparently decided. I mean, we know we know it would have a soul because it would be alive. Yeah. If it if it wouldn't have a soul, it wouldn't be alive. And um, God has apparently made the determination that even if we come up with a human being through means he has not approved, yeah. like in vitro or adultery or rape or however you may be producing a human out of marital uh, Congress, um, that if we come up with the human body, he will endow it with the human soul. 
Adam, uh, great question. Oh, oh, I was going to say, though, there are other accounts on Star Trek that would cast some doubt on is that really how the transporter works? There's an episode of Next Generation where uh, Mr. Barkley, who's an engineer that they have in some episodes, played by a guy from the A-Team. Um, oh yeah, the guy from the A Team, the yeah, guy that, that played the um, kind of crazy guy. Name, yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't remember. Howling Mad Murdoch. That sounds right. Yeah, uh, I never watched that show, but um, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. So in he plays this somewhat neurotic engineer that they have, but who's ba- who's really good at heart, and he develops what seems to be transporter psychosis. He, which is where the transport process destabilizes your brain. And they think that's what's happening to him. And in this episode, we actually get a first person experience of what it's like to be transported from his perspective. And he's conscious throughout the process and is aware of what's happening throughout the process of being transported, including when he's dematerialized. And that would suggest that you're not actually killed. You're instead rearranged or reconditioned or reconfigured in such a way that you're not actually killed through the process, Mm -hmm. in which case this would be non-destructive transportation and it would not be morally objectionable, at least on the grounds that I've seen. Adam, thanks. Remember the time um, uh, Commander Riker got transported and then there was two Two of them? Yeah, that would be another transporter cloning or twinning. Since we have clones in the real world, we call them twins. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right. Michael, uh, Okay, now here's a good weird question for us. Michael via email asks, is almond milk bad for the environment? So I I am not familiar with arguments. I may have heard it claimed that almond milk is bad for the environment, but I did. Well, almonds are very water intensive. Uh-huh. You do have to uh, almond trees require a lot of water. Okay, fine. Um, the I would suppose that this is related. I mean, okay, so let's take the water thing. Um, the thing about water is we have a hydrological cycle on Earth. Oh, yeah, so even if water goes into something, it's going to come back out again. And the amount of water in an actual almond is de minimis, and that gets ingested by, say, a human, and it's going to come out of the human, too. So you're not diminishing the world supply of water by permanently by right. growing almond trees. You may have local supply issues. Um, but cause like almond trees are native to Iran and a lot of Iran doesn't, I, I, I don't know how much water they have there, but it may not be oh, a yeah. lot. Right. Um, so there could be local problems with that, but that's a local supply mechanics issue. It's not going to cause a global problem in terms of, uh, what I initially thought this might be about. And I didn't have a chance to research it before the show because this question just came in today. Um, but I, my first thought was that this is going to be another global warming thing. And because, Hmm. uh, I could imagine someone saying like, they'll say, well, cows, are bad are for bad them. for the environment because they're resource intensive and they emit flatulence which contains gases yeah that's yeah. going to harm the uh environment by promoting global warming and i could imagine someone making a similar claim about almonds um however i would find it a little strange because normally trees are proposed oh, as yeah. offsets yeah, for other things. Yeah. yeah, so you have these carbon offset tax credits in some countries if you plant enough trees. And so I think, well, why would almond trees be an exception? However that may be, you know, there are a lot of scientists who, who think that the world's getting warmer 
And there are a lot of scientists who think humans are significantly responsible for that through the emission of greenhouse gases. Personally, I'm unconvinced of that. In fact, I'm a little bit skeptical of it because I've seen, as a student of the history of science, I've seen numerous examples where political fads and fashions run away and end up cooking the data. And and uh, this, because of the intense politicization of this issue, I, my spidey sense is going off. That And there have even been instances where climate research scientists have been caught apparently cooking the data. There was that whole hide the decline I remember standard yeah. scandal from a few years ago. But let's suppose uh, let's suppose that uh, that, you know, the the world is warming and that humans are significantly responsible for it. What what would that mean for almond milk? Well, um, it would see it, it, I would have a couple of concerns about it. The first one is um, the amount of almond milk that the human race consumes is so small that it seems to me you would be better focusing your efforts on other larger issues than almond milk. Like if the you, almond milk truck. Probably well, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the uh, that you you'd want to invest your efforts in combating greenhouse gases elsewhere rather than this. Right. <laughs> also, I've seen um, I've seen a lot of these fads happen where it's it's really and I hate to psychologize these things because I don't like to psychologize other people's beliefs. But in this case, it's really hard to avoid noting that there every year. There or more, there is some new this is horrible for the environment, whether it's plastic straws or almond milk or cheeseburgers or whatever it is. People, somebody somewhere, often some activist will find a thing and mount a case that it's somehow bad for the environment. And people will run with this claim. Often there will be no research backing this up or really sloppy research. And the fact is that actually most studies, there's a bit of a crisis in science right now. It turns out most studies end up being wrong, the majority. And so I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, I would be skeptical of the claim that almond milk contributes to global warming for that reason. Uh, there have not been huge major studies confirming this. This is high, would be highly speculative. And it's really driven by a process of anxiety and virtue signaling um, to, oh, we got to leap on this latest thing. It's bad for the environment. There are bigger fish to fry in the world than this. And we end up focusing on the wrong things if we worry about some of these trivial things like because the amount of almond milk people drink is small yeah. in the overall world economy, there are bigger issues that need to be dealt with, like, uh, say, abortion. Amen. Right. Uh, Michael, thanks so much. I appreciate that. Uh, it is a weird questions with Jimmy Aiken this hour. Jeff asks the following question, Jimmy, will we have Oh, will we have couples with our resurrected bodies? From Genesis, it appears humans are built to be couples so we can see companionship throughout our existence. Now that doesn't mean now that doesn't mean all are like that. I'm not exactly sure what I think he means. Not every person needs a companion in this life. Oh, I got you. Like hermits. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, so do we have couples in our with our resurrected bodies? Um, The. 
Jesus makes it really clear that we're not going to be marrying or giving in marriage in the resurrection. And so we won't be having sex if we do have couples. Um, Genesis does show us that, uh, I mean, it doesn't say we're not going to have couples. And Genesis does show us that we're meant to be social creatures and that there's nothing in divine revelation to contradict that for the future. The images we have of heaven and the afterlife depict choruses of people uh, worshiping God and so forth. And so um, I, I assume I think there's pretty good evidence we'll still have society. We'll still have social interactions, whether we'll have a unique person that we're that we're a that is our companion, that's a little bit harder because that sounds like marriage and we know we're not going to have marriage. Um, but it's not impossible. And I would assume people in the future will still maybe based on what happened in this life, they'll still have special affection for certain people. They'll still have special friendships with other people. Uh, we do know they won't be sexual, but I don't see I'd say it's kind of in the middle in terms of would there be companions? I don't see good evidence for it, but it's not impossible. Jeff, uh, thank you very, very much for that question. Elaine's question is this, Jimmy. Could there possibly be a good God, and she has that in quotes, and a bad God, in quotes, equal in power, who each play a role in the Old Testament, New Testament, Testament, and even today? What a great question. So uh, this is a view that's sometimes called dualism. And there are other kinds of dualism, but this is applying dualism to the Godhead and saying, OK, there's these two gods and one of them's good, one of them's bad and they're otherwise equal. The answer to could there be two such gods? Not if you're talking about the kind of God that Christians worship. Um, now, if you're talking about the kind of God that Greeks let's say, or Egyptians worshipped, where they're yeah. not really infinite beings. They're just more powerful than us. They're like superheroes. Yeah. Well, sure. There could be a superhero God and a supervillain God Yeah, to go with that analogy. But when you're talking about the kind of God that Christians worship, we worship an infinite absolute God that has. And what that means is that God has all possible perfections, including moral perfection. He is all good. And therefore, um, any being that did not have perfect goodness, in other words, an, an evil being, could not be equal to the true God because he would be lacking the perfection of moral goodness. And and that would have kind of cascading implications for his other attributes because it would end up reducing him to the status of a finite being. Uh, he wouldn't have yeah. this in absolute... In all possible perfections, uh, and that would end up reducing him to the status of a finite being and thus not a God in the sense of the God Christians worship. Uh, that bring, I got two questions then. Can okay. I do, can I do follow-ups? Yeah. Weird question follow-ups. Um, uh, the first one is, wasn't there a, a, a kind of an early church heresy? Mm -hmm. It might, I might be thinking of Marcion that where, yes. where yeah. the old Testament God Mar was not the same as the new Testament. Marcion of Pontus. Yeah. Um, he wasn't the only one. Now Marcion, oh, okay. Marcion did think there were two gods. Um, he thought the God of the old Testament was a bad God and the God of the new Testament was a good God. And uh, the problem with that, I was going to mention this. The problem with that is the new Testament of, Affirms the Old Testament. 
and as the word of God and of the true God, like in John's gospel, for example, Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. So Jesus and he's talking about the God they already worship as Jews. So um, Jesus also quoted scripture. He quoted it as the word of God. And uh, and he regards himself as the son of the God of the Old Testament. So we have all this stuff affirming the unity of or, or the identity of the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. It's just now we know more about him because we know he's a trinity now. Um, so the only way Marcion had to deal with that or the way Marcion had to deal with that is he cut all those passages out of the Bible. He produced a mutilated edition of the New Testament that was uh-huh. just an an edited down version of the gospel of Luke and an edited down version of Paul's epistles. He cut out everything he regarded as too Jewish. And, um, and the problem is that those weren't the scriptures that had been handed down from the apostles. Uh, Those, that wasn't the faith that had been handed down from the apostles. So yeah, there have been people in history like Marcion who've proposed this. Um, Also many of the Gnostics, uh, proposed similar things, um, but it's not the faith that was handed down. This is not what the scriptures originally said. This was a mutilation of the scriptures. Uh, all right, that's uh, th- that'll do. Because I um, let's go to Steve Elaine. Uh, thank you for that uh, question. Steve uh, asks this: If we do evangelize species on other planets that are asexual, could, oh, this is good. Could they mm-hmm. become priests, given that they would not strictly be male? Um, the answer to this is that the magisterium would have to make that determination. And um, actually, if you want more detail on this or theological implications about aliens, intelligent aliens and what it would mean in terms of all the different sacraments, you want to check out episode 55 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, because <laughs> we devote the entire episode to exploring those questions. Um, what I say there is what I'd say here, which is the magisterium would have to determine it, but it is not clear that it would is not at all clear that they would be able to be ordained. Mm-hmm. Um, and my assumption would be that uh, just like in our species, the male gender is necessary in any other intelligent species, even if they could be baptized, they would still probably need to have the male gender in order to be able to ordain be ordained. All right, Steve, thank you very, very much. We remain in space with Dan's question. Suppose we do have space colonies. We don't have to suppose that. There's already people in space. They're up there right now. Not so much colonies. Yeah, that's a a temporary research station. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Suppose we do have space colonies. If the second coming occurs, then will they continue? Is there a bishop and no cardinal out there who would pick the next pope? Oh, oh, I get it. What's good. Okay, so uh, if there is only one cardinal or bishop, does he get to be uh, the pope automatically? So the idea then would be mm-hmm. the second coming happens. This is the image I'm getting. You tell yeah. me if I'm reading this right. That means everybody that that Earth is reunited with Christ. But I apparently this person is thinking uh, that Dan's thinking that in space. The second coming didn't happen, and so the church has to continue out there. That seems to be the scenario he's okay. envisioning, at least yeah. in the second part of the question. Okay, so so um, so what we're talking about here is, you know, how they have insurance policies for acts of God. 
Yeah. Like thunderstorms and stuff, which aren't properly speaking acts of God, but people call them that because they're not within human control. Right. Um, So we're talking about a kind of act of God situation in a more literal sense in this case, where uh, all of a sudden the earthly church isn't there anymore. So the Pope vanishes, all the earthly bishops and cardinals vanish and what happens in that case. Um, But you have them left elsewhere. Well, that's essentially the same scenario as suppose you have all the cardinals gathered in a conclave to elect a new pope yeah and terrorists explode a nuke on the site so suddenly the uh voting cardinals are all gone yeah how does the church supposed to cope with that um i've actually thought about that for years and i i don't so far as i know there is not a provision in church law to deal with that Mm -hmm. um but I and personally, I've wished they would craft one. Yeah, because um, the actually doesn't seem completely not out of the, the not these days. Yeah, and um, and so um, you know, I, I could imagine different scenarios. Like you have a cardinal somewhere who's the designated survivor. Yeah. In such an in such a situation. And he would then either become the pope or appoint the next pope. Um, you know, just like we have designated survivors, there's whenever you have the the president and the vice president and the cabinet together, yeah. like at the State of the Union, there's always one of them who's not there. Right. At an undisclosed location. I wish they would do something similar for conclaves. Um, because these days with weapons of mass destruction, this is a real possibility. Sure. And, but they, thus far as I know, have not done that. It's certainly not in any public document. Um, having said that, well, um, if there were cardinals who are off the planet at the time the earthly church vanishes, then um, because Christ does not ask the impossible of the church. And he's indicated the church is to survive and is to have a successor of Peter. Um, I would say exigent circumstances that have emerged would warrant the surviving cardinals to pick the Pope. And if there's only one surviving cardinal, he could either assume the office himself or appoint someone else, not necessarily a cardinal as Pope. Um, If there were no cardinals, it would fall to whatever surviving bishops there are. Um, so th- that's what I would say would happen in those situations, uh, because necessity, even though there's not a specific provision for this in the law, um, as we're envisioning it, uh, necessity would require this action. And this is the most logical form of action. So it becomes a law in that it's would be passed by the highest legislators of the church at the time. Yeah. And it would be an ordinance of reason promulgated for the common good, and thus it would fit the definition of a law. Yeah. So they could go ahead and do that in that situation. Uh, but I don't think it's going to come to that because when you, in this scenario, yes, uh, yeah. because when you read about the second coming in scripture, it seems like this is God's definitive wrapping up of the human race. All of the dead and all of the remaining living meet their ultimate fates. And so right. I would say if we have off-world colonies at the time of the second coming, they're going to be pulled into this too. 
And yes, so I don't right. think there's going to be people left on Mars after the second coming. I think if there are people out in the heavens, they're going to they're going to be dealt with, too. Uh, yeah, that's why I struggled with that for because I kind of I guess I that was even an assumption in my mind. And I didn't realize it took me a minute to realize what Dan was asking. Dan, thank you for a great, weird uh, question. Um, why is it specifically forbidden for Catholics to be Freemasons? I get that the religious indifferentism and the frivolous use of use of oaths are problematic, but it's odd that only one club is so explicitly banned. Is there something else? So this is an interesting question because it has a couple of different dimensions that we need to untangle. Originally, in the 1917 Code of Canon Law, it did specifically mention the Freemasons and say you can't be a member of the Freemasons. Um, it also, if I recall correctly, though, mentioned some other similar groups. That changed with the release of the 1983 Code of Canon Law. John Paul II made a decision to reframe the law so that it did not specifically name the Masons. And he was even queried about this, about, you sure you want to do this? And he said, yeah. Um, what the law now says is that Catholics cannot be members of organizations that are attempting to subvert the church. Okay. So actually, church canon law does not say you can't be a member of the Masons. It okay. says you can't be a member of an anti-Catholic subversive organization. Um, and th however, this picture is complicated because uh, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith weighed in on the issue and said, for various reasons, including, you know, the indifferentism and stuff like that, you still can't be a Mason on doctrinal grounds, but okay. not... Not, not under law. that canon, because yeah. the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith is not the Pontifical Council for the Interpretation of Legislative Texts, yeah. and it can't issue an authentic interpretation of that canon. Um, but John Paul II nevertheless approved the documents where the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith weighed in on this. And so... Um, so it's kind of a tricky situation involving both legal and theological elements. But the bottom line is don't be a Mason. Um, and it's not specific to them. There are other groups, too. Although uh, the reason that Masons were named specifically historically, in addition to other groups like the Odd Fellows and people like that, um, the reason that they were and the orange men and stuff, the reason that Masons were named specifically is Masons in several countries, not specifically the United States. In the United States, the Masons are often more just a men's club. They mm -hmm. don't have specifically anti-Catholic designs. But in other countries, they have. In Europe and in Latin America, Masons have actively conspired against the church. And, um, and so that meant historically that the church Produced and the popes produced a series of documents condemning the Masons. And so that's why historically they attracted more attention than other groups, because they were very active historically in a variety of countries trying to undermine the church. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Richard, for that question. You know, wait, listening to you answer that question, it makes me I would rather live in a world with a lot of clubs. It doesn't seem like there's that many clubs anymore. Like there mm -hmm. used to be a lot of like even naming there's like the odd fellows. Uh -huh. I don't think I even but there used to be. 
Well, it just seems like there was a lot more clubs. I call regularly days. for five dance clubs. Oh, yeah, so that's true. Yeah. There are still clubs. Although I, there were these kind of fraternal clubs that were more popular. Yeah, I want a club where I don't do anything. <laughs> I guess that's what I'm saying. Especially in the 19th century, dressing, having men's clubs where the men all get together away from the wife and kids and they dress up in outrageous uniforms and give themselves bizarre titles and do. Like odd, Grand Poobah. Yeah, that's that. Those are all. Uh, uh, that was the thing to do back in the in the 1800s. You know where Poobah comes from? It, now that so Grand Poobah, that's from the Flintstones, yeah, right? That's right. the loyal order of water buffaloes. Yeah, um, but. Uh, Poobah itself comes from a Gilbert and Sullivan opera. It comes oh, really? from the Mikado. Uh, you have in in the town of Titipu in Japan, you have Coco, uh, the tailor who becomes the Lord High Executioner. And then you have Poobah, who is the Lord High everything else. He oh. has all the other titles. <laughs> uh, Margot asks this, uh, Jimmy, regarding Our Lady of Fatima. Mm hmm. Why hasn't the church made her request first Saturday devotion and daily rosary mandatory and obligatory? Um, I this would be a question that the popes would have to answer. However, I would note that the church doesn't consider public re private revelation to be binding on everybody. It's uh, something that is offered as a suggestion to help people live in a in an authentically Catholic manner, in an authentically Christian manner, and to experience God's blessings, but it's not something that's mandatory and for for people. And so consequently, that would, to my mind, create a challenge in uh, mandating a practice recommended by a private revelation. Um, also the uh, I'd have to go back and review the documents, uh, you know, that are connected with Fatima. But I don't recall the Virgin Mary as being reported as saying, like, everyone must do this. Yeah. It was more of a this is a good thing to do. Yeah. Okay. And um, so given that and given the fact that private revelations are not considered binding on all the faithful. I would say would give the church reason not to mandate these things, although it obviously promoted them by allowing these these documents, even in an age when canon law required much more serious approval of private revelations before their messages could be publicly discussed. It allowed them to be publicly discussed and promoted. And there have been uh, societies founded that the church approves to promote the message of Fatima. And there have been uh, popes themselves who have approved the message of Fatima and promoted it. And so I, I think it's when it comes to crossing the line into mandating something that it uh, that it the church would would have more of an issue. All right. By the way, mm. uh, this October. So next month two-part special on the third secret of Fatima oh, mysterious world. Very good. Okay. We're looking forward to that. Thank you, Margo, for the question. It's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. And here comes another one. Paul asks this, what's the church say about playing the lottery? The church doesn't have any statement about the lottery specifically. Um, gambling is something that the church does not have a problem with, provided it's done in moderation. Um, because what you're doing when you're gambling at least if you're doing it in a healthy way, what you're doing. And personally, I never gamble, so I don't have a dog in this race. 
get it. Um, I bet that's true. Yeah. Um, I was trying to come up with there something. There you go. I bet forever. that's true. That that's so good. slow. That's good. I know you. It was quick. You just could say it with more emphasis. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> um, so, so I personally never gamble, but what you, what someone is doing if they're gambling in a healthy, responsible way is they're, they're, they're paying money to be entertained. Well, that's like going to a movie or going out to a restaurant or buying a book or, or whatever you want. It's paying money to have fun. And there's nothing wrong as long as what you're doing is not intrinsically problematic, like buying porn or something, um, then or buying, you know, drugs that are going to wreck your life, then paying money to have fun is not a problem. And as long as you're not a gambling addict and as long as you're not spending money on gambling that you should be using to, say, feed your children, you know, as long as you can afford it and it brings you pleasure and it's not it's not an unreasonable portion of your income, it's fine. It's like any other spending money to have fun. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Paul, for that question. Peter asks this, Jimmy, related. Oh, if you have a one ounce or no, if you have an ounce of Lord's water in a 10 ounce bottle and add nine ounces of tap water, then shake it up. Does the whole thing become Lord's water? Can this technique be used ad infinitum? There, there is not a determination to this question, certainly on the doctrinal level. And I don't know any theologians who've dealt with it. And so I, and I don't think there's a theological consensus on this question. I would say if I were to answer the question, I would say the answer is unknowable. Um, that at this stage of doctrinal development, uh, we haven't arrived at a way of determining the answer. What I would say is that God knows that if you're trying to extend Lord's water so you or someone else may have a blessing, let's say healing in connection with the Lord's water, I would say, um, and for people who may not be aware, Lord's is a place in France where there is an apparition and there have been many miraculous healings connected with a the spring there. So uh, sometimes people will take water from that spring and you can you know, get a bottle of it and give it to a sick person and so forth. I would say that if you're extending it to benefit a sick person, God knows that's your intention. And whether it's still in his mind, properly speaking, Lord's water, he knows what you're trying to do. He knows you're using it to ask for his healing in connection with this famous site of healings that he set up. And so I would say that that would give you hope for uh, it providing some form of blessing, maybe not as great as pure Lord's water, but he knows what you're trying to do and God loves you and, and so forth. I would also say you don't want to be too, you don't want to, you know, be superstitious about this because whether there's a healing or not, it's not the Lord's water that does it. It's God. This is using Lord's water as a way of asking God to do a healing. Um, but in God's mind, is it still, quote unquote, Lord's water at that point? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. He might say, oh, well, if you take uh, you take an ounce of Lord's water and you dilute it with nine parts regular water, it's one tenth Lord's water at that point. Yeah, <laughs> right. God can do fractions. Yeah, he can. <laughs> I'm sure he can. Philip asks this. Uh, was Jesus really dead all day, Holy Saturday and just waiting to come out on Sunday? I would say yes, because uh, even though you could imagine him reviving on Saturday and just waiting to come out, the picture, the 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 picture we have presented to us in Scripture is of him. And this is, you know, in terms of his own words, he's going to be dead for three days and three nights. Now, that's hyperbole because it's not a full 72 hours. 
uh, if you do the math. It's not a full 72 hours, so he's using a Hebrew approximative form of speech. One of the things you find when you study ancient uh, metrology or the study of measurements is in the ancient world, people would frequently count parts for holes. Mm -hmm. So if you have um, 13 months, they could say, oh, that's two years. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, And so Jesus is is not literally in the tomb by our hyper-precise reckoning. He's not literally in the tomb for three full days and three full nights, 72 hours. He's in the day for, he's in the tomb for part of Friday, all of Saturday, and part of Sunday. Right. And, and it would seem to rub against Jesus's words, even acknowledging that they're, that they're somewhat figurative and that it's not full 72 hours. If you reduced it to, he was just dead for Friday and part of Saturday, yeah, and then he revived on Saturday and waited a bunch of hours. Right, that would right. seem to reduce it to just two days, and uh, in a way that's incompatible with Hebrew speech at the time. And so, I would say that the implication, based on Jesus's own statement, is that even though it's not a full seventy-two hours, he was dead between Friday and sometime Sunday morning. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Mike M., Ben and Susie S., Brian T., Jacob W., and Tim H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at AaronV.com. And by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at RosaryArmy.com. So, Jimmy, what is going to be the subject of our next episode? Next Friday, we're going to be talking about lie detectors. How do they work? How reliable are they? And how can they be beat? Excellent. Folks, remember to send us your feedback by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. And happy Thanksgiving, everyone. <laughs>